Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, and today's episode will be mainly focused on Noahide Law. So this is near the beginning of season five. We've gone over the story of Adam and Eve and how it relates to God setting up hierarchies and rulership and these types of things. And so now we are getting into the next big example of God setting something like that in motion. And this is where some people would say God establishes capital punishment or governments as a whole. And so uh, that is something that we need to dig into because pretty much the point of season five is to get into this relationship between the Christian and the state. So it's all about the theology of obedience. We are to obey God, and God tells us we are to obey the authorities. We are to submit to them. And at the same time, we know that these authorities are often corrupt and evil, and God specifically says that choosing them and having them rule over us is a rejection of himself. He also says that the prince of the air or the adversary is the one who is overall in charge of and rules over the sons of disobedience or the kingdom of man or basically anybody that's not Christian, that's not of his kingdom, that is uh, not a part of the church. And so uh, it kind of seems like a contradiction at first glance that we are to submit and obey to these evil Uh, people and evil systems and this evil kingdom ran by the adversary himself. Uh, That doesn't make sense. Well, that's why, at least the way that I would portray it, we are to submit but not to support. And as much as possible, we are to stay away from those kingdoms and get out from under those kingdoms and as much as possible work within the framework of the kingdom of God. And that is uh, kind of where we're going with this season as a whole. But I'm going back to the beginning. Uh, Adam and Eve was the uh, first large example of this. And I'm trying to work through the Old Testament with uh, various examples and passages and stories that a lot of people would point to and uh, think that, well, and usually, rightfully so, that it has something to say about this theology of obedience to man and to God. And I want to uh, make a clear picture of what is being said and what is not being said, as well as lay the foundations for digging in even deeper into this subject. So today's episode will be Noahide Law, like I said, and I will start off by reading the passages that uh, relate to this. So to give you some context, this is just after the flood. Noah and his family have come off of the ark, and God is speaking directly to Noah. This uh, specific set of verses comes from Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And as usual, I'll be reading the complete Jewish Bible translation. And it starts this way, verse 9. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will be upon every wild animal, every bird in the air, every creature populating the ground, and all the fish in the sea. They have been handed over to you. Every moving thing that lives will be food for you. Just as I gave you green plants before, now I give you everything. Only flesh with its life, which is its blood, you are not to eat. 
I will certainly demand an accounting for the blood of your lives. I will demand it from every animal and from every human being. I will demand from every human being an accounting for the life of his fellow human being. Whoever sheds human blood by a human being will his own blood be shed. For God made human beings in his image. And you people, be fruitful, multiply, swarm on the earth and multiply on it. So you probably got the echoes of the original creation story when God specifically told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, as well as on the seventh day of creation when God rested on the Sabbath, he specifically says that he rested and let his creation multiply and spread and continue doing their thing. And this is basically what he's saying will happen with the animals and what the people should do as well. It's echoing creation because this is a story of uh, basically recreation, like uh, creation part two kind of a thing. And he had destroyed everything on the earth with water. And now it is going to repopulate both animal and human. And this will be a new start, a fresh start. He also tells Noah, I believe it's right after this, that he will never again destroy the earth by water. Uh, That is something that will come by fire next time. So it's not that he will never destroy the earth. It's that it will not happen by water. And the end times, it is said and written that he will destroy the earth with fire and it will be destroyed completely. And then there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Now, I will get into that sometime. I'm not really sure where I think that comes up. It comes up somewhere in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Not directly, but I will get into it at that point, which will be many, many, many weeks down the road. So let's just start off with this passage here. Now, after cleansing the world of evil societies, because God had said that man was corrupt and that every inclination in his heart was evil and that all these horrible things were happening and no one was turned towards God— So God cleanses the world of all of this evil. If you go, also, backstory, if you go back to the book of Enoch and some other uh, literature of that nature, there is much more description of what was going on at that time. And take it as you will. It is not canon for the majority of Christians. But what it does say, and it is alluded to in the canon, that the angels that rebelled from God, came down to earth, and somehow, in some way, had relations with the human women there. And as a result, there were uh, the Nephilim that were born. That is the word for them that are uh, half human and part angel, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term here. And so this would be kind of like the idea of a demigod, because the Elohim would be the angels and uh, the gods, whatever. They came down to earth and slept with the daughters of man. And then you had these creatures, um, these people. Uh, It was said that they were the men of great renown. And yes, that's the story of the demigods. Like, exactly. That's that's what the story is. And so uh, for uh, another 
I guess a little bit. I'll try to wrap this up quickly. But uh, another theory on this is that a lot of ancient religions, what they would do is they would have these ceremonies that would unite the physical with the spiritual, that would bring the spiritual god into the bedroom uh, during a... Uh, an experience of a man and woman having relations. And so uh, the way this would work, and obviously this was not people worshiping God, this was other people with other gods. And the way that it would work is that they would have a special ceremony, there would be a certain type of bed, an extra large bed typically, and there was uh, a lot involved here. But basically, the idea was it was a human man and a human woman. But through this ceremony, they invited in this other being, this spiritual being, this God to participate in that. And it was uh, expected that the pregnancy, that the life that would then be created had a relationship to that other god, that spiritual entity that they brought in through that ceremony into those relations that they had. And so that that is one theory. Another is just that uh, basically angelic beings somehow directly had relations with human women. Um, and then some people would say it's all metaphor. And I, I really struggle with saying that about just about anything in the Bible. But uh, there is metaphor, but typically it is not only metaphor. It is a both-and situation in most cases. But uh, moving on from all this, so God ends up cleansing the world because uh, I, I guess, at least according to the book of Enoch, these Nephilim had grown up and you had these fallen angels that had taught human beings all these things like war and uh, sensual things like makeup and beauty and all of these kinds of things, uh, astrology of various natures, all kinds of different things that uh, basically led humanity down a bad path and a lot of bad stuff was going on. So God cleanses the world. God starts fresh with Noah and his family. God tells them to multiply and fill the earth. And this is a command that's very important for the next example. The key statement for our purposes here is from verses 5 and 6, where it says, I will certainly demand an accounting for the blood of your lives. I will demand it from every animal and from every human being. I will demand from every human being an accounting for the life of his fellow human being. Whoever sheds human blood by a human being will his own blood be shed. For God made human beings in his image. So God makes it very clear here that if one man murders another, the first will also be killed by human hands. That's what is being said here. That's just a paraphrase of that, those verses. Now, many say that this is the establishment of government. They think maybe, how else could there be a death penalty for murder carried out by other humans if not through an organized government? That would be the logical conclusion in their minds. While this would be an understandable question, it is not as rhetorical as some would think. While I'm not personally making a decisive stance, I will provide a few options here because there are many ways to take this, and I think it is worthwhile going through the different options. 
Now, the first thing would be that uh, maybe what God was saying was that this could be a punishment directed by God through human government, but not because God wants humans to establish governments for this purpose, but rather because God knows governments will be established regardless in rejection and rebellion of himself, and he is therefore stating that he will use them to serve his justice as he proceeds to do throughout pretty much the rest of the Bible, where over and over again he uses, you know, Assyria and Babylon and Rome and all of these different governments and people of power and kings. He uses them for his own purposes, usually to carry out his own justice. And he even calls them his servants, his rod or staff or his sword, the sword of his wrath. There are many different phrases that he uses here, but that does not mean that Assyria or Babylon or Rome are uh, groups and governments that God uh, really liked and accepted and thought were good and needed to be there. No, not by any stretch of the imagination. These were corrupt and evil entities, just like the kings and rulers were typically very corrupt and very evil. Uh, God was not saying that he approved, but he did use them. And so uh, that could be one explanation of what this means, that if a human being is killed by another human being, then the murderer will be killed by other human beings. And so if you want to take that as God is setting a directive for people to proactively do, he might just be saying that, oh, well, this is what I am going to have these governments and these kings do, uh, knowing that people will set up kings and governments. That's just the way people are. And uh, he does specifically say to Israel that doing so is a rejection of himself. So just to make that very clear, we'll get to that one too. So another option is a relationship to the verse, uh, when was it? It was when Jesus was being arrested before being sent through uh, his predicament and ultimately to the cross. What happens was that uh, most people believe it's Peter, at least, drew his sword and struck another man on the ear and uh, some would say that he was just in a fit of rage and passion and he just struck blindly and it cut off the guy's ear. Others would say, and this makes a little more sense to me, that he intentionally cut off his ear because the man was part of the priestly class. And according to Mosaic law, if you were missing an ear, you could not serve on the priestly class. And so it was also an injury and an insult and that kind of thing. Um, uh, probably that sounds more likely to me personally, even though that's not typically how people take it. But it really doesn't matter for this case, because the point is that Jesus then said, when, uh, well, I'll paraphrase here because I don't have the verse in front of me. Basically, it's that if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. And uh, this could be, and it would make sense because it sounds very familiar here, that uh, that this is reference to Noahide law. And Noahide law is referencing the same concept as what Yeshua is saying in, in those verses. So a common view of this perspective is that living violently. If you are living violently, then one will very likely fall victim to violence themselves. It's the idea that violent delights have violent ends, and this is just kind of a matter of fact. And this could be uh, as simple as that. This could be either through God's intervention 
or just as a logical consequence of one's actions. God's, God obviously is stating to Noah that a murderer deserves the death penalty and that he will receive it. This is clear. I will grant you that. However, this does not inherently mean that man must therefore establish organized governments and make laws in order to make sure that God's statements turn out to be true and become realized. God does not need our assistance to bring about his declarations. He is making a declaration, it is true, period. And so that's just the way it is. He doesn't need us to uh, validify the things that he says. So, Again, he does say that live by the sword, die by the sword. He does say if a human being kills someone else, then they will be killed by human beings too. But again, there are many ways of taking that. Let's go to a third option here. The third is to look at the next example of God directing the death penalty to be carried out by human beings. This would be Mosaic Law. So as God lays out how his specific physical regional society should operate, he does also declare that there will be the death penalty for murder. So again, Mosaic Law is God is saying, if you're going to have an organized society, well, not only if you're going to have one, I will establish a specific organized society, and it will be an example of me to the rest of the world. I'm going to set them apart. I am going to divide and elect them, and they will be a special people. They will be my people. I will be their God. And that is what he does. And Mosaic Law is the governance code for how that society is to run, uh, both on a human level, as well as how is it supposed to interact with God himself. So you've got both aspects there. Now, the catch with Mosaic Law is that Mosaic Law does not establish a formal government, but rather a decentralized governance system without a formal governing body itself. It is not the police or the military or other government representatives who are to carry out the death penalty, but rather the next of kin or the blood avenger. Therefore, according to God's own elaboration on and law of the death penalty, it can and likely should be carried out apart from a centralized, organized, formal government. So let's, uh, again, just grant that God is saying that this is what should happen and human beings should take the life of a murderer. Let's grant that. And I, I am not necessarily granting that personally, but I'm saying for the sake of argument, even if you grant that, that is not according to at least God's elaboration on a governance system for a society that he set up himself. That's not something that is done by a government. That is not a law that man wrote. That is something that is done by the next person in line, the blood avenger. It is the typically the closest relative, the brother, something like that, a representative for the one who was murdered. They are the ones who carry out that death penalty. So even if you are granting that uh, Noahide law is establishing the death penalty, it's still would likely, if you use the Bible to interpret the Bible, if you use God's word and his, his specific words to interpret his specific words, he said both of these things directly. And if you believe the Bible is true, then both of these things were said directly from the mouth of God, that both uh, a, a murderer should be killed by human hands and that 
when a society is established with laws and rules and someone commits a murder, then the blood avenger is the one that should avenge that death and carry out the death penalty. So he said both of those things. So that should be pretty clear. So again, even if you go to this establishes the death penalty, you cannot go to this establishes government. That is not a thing, at least not here. So uh, the fourth point to make is that God makes it clear that he desires mercy. This is throughout the entire Bible. He wants us to show love to all, despite our sins, as he has done for us. When Cain kills Abel, of course, he deserves the death penalty, as God has said, being a very clear example of a man murdering another man. God, however, does not carry out this punishment, but rather allows Cain to live in banishment. So, it could be that Cain ends up getting killed at some point, and uh, I don't think we have a whole lot of elaboration on the death of Cain. So it could be that there's some aspect of human hands that is involved with his downfall kind of a thing. But it's not that Cain commits murder and God therefore kills him, or that Adam steps up and kills him, or one of Abel's brothers comes up and kills him. That, that's not what happens. Cain is shown mercy to a degree. Now, it doesn't seem like it was a a very positive uh, issuing of God to kick him out and banish him and give him these curses that he is then to live with. But it is the case that even though Cain deserved death, God did not grant it. God even prevents other humans to kill him through the use of the mark that he is given. King David is another very clear example of this. He commits murder, but God shows mercy. Although human life is taken as a direct result, it is the life of his son, David's son, that is taken, not David himself. In direct contradiction of the Noahide law that by a human being will his own blood be shed. It says his own blood. So David's own blood should have been shed, but that's not what God did. David dies on his deathbed without the aid of another human being. So, Yeshua also elaborates on this concept of mercy over the letter of the law. This will be assessed in full later, but the concept of allowing, forgiving, and not resisting evil actions are in line with this idea that comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Yeshua says that even if we have every legal right according to his law and state law, we should give up our right and our role of carrying out punishment ourselves as an example and extension of God's mercy towards us. You even have that example of Yeshua with the uh, adulterous woman or prostitute, whatever it was, and she's brought into the street and they were going to stone him. And that's when he writes in in the sand on the ground and says, who's going to cast the first stone? That whole story. Uh, That woman deserved the death penalty by Mosaic law. She deserves stoning. That's what Mosaic law says. Now, you can't, well, I I'll just give my personal opinion that you would be very wrong to say that God doesn't care about Mosaic law, that Mosaic law is wrong or insufficient in some way. No, Mosaic law is true justice. God told us what justice was and laid that out through Mosaic law. And it's something that he established, that he said, that he set forth. And so that is not something that is going to change. That's not something that later on he's like, well, yeah, I said that. But but really, uh, I, I think we should do it this way instead. No, Mosaic Law says what justice is. What justice is, is 
the death penalty for a variety of actions and sins. However, even though that is true, this is not a contradiction in any way. Even though that is true, that Mosaic law is establishing what justice is, there is still something that overrides that, and that would be mercy and love. So, God does, on one hand, say, this is justice, the death penalty. God also says, on the other hand, that even though this person deserves death, you should show them mercy. That is what he says. And that is what he does. I gave you a few examples here of God directly doing this. There are other examples of God directly killing people and issuing the death penalty himself. So I am not saying that the the death penalty is something that can't be biblically argued. Yes, it can. But what I want to make clear is that there are many times and a lot of biblical teachings, especially by Yeshua, but also by God himself, that dictate that mercy is to be shown, love is to be shown over justice, over carrying out even Mosaic law. And so you've got that aspect as well, that again, even if in Noahide law, God is saying death penalty for all murderers, period, he could say that. And, and let's, let's say that that's what was meant by God saying, um, when you shed a man's blood, by man's hands will his own blood be shed. Let's say that that is what is being said, that you deserve the death penalty to be carried out by other human beings, period, end of story. That, that is not necessarily untrue, and I'm not trying to say that, it's, that it is untrue. That could be very true. According to Mosaic Law, I would actually argue that it is true, that that is what a murderer deserves. That is justice. But at the same time, again, I'm trying to make this very clear, that even though that is justice, that's not necessarily what a Christian is supposed to carry out. Again, even Mosaic Law would say that's the blood avenger's role not a state or not another person. And the blood adventure can show mercy as well. Uh, you could even go even further and say that uh, regardless of whether it's the blood adventure or not, God shows mercy, Yeshua shows mercy, even when people deserve the death penalty. Uh, aren't we supposed to live by their example? Well, yes. So you've got all of these different aspects. To bring this down as a conclusion The Noahide law of blood for blood is not a definitive and specific establishment of human government in any way. It would be extremely difficult, given everything that I just laid out, to make a case for this establishes human government, which I have heard said many, many times. Uh, It's it's just not there. It, it, It really isn't. While it could be taken this way, that interpretation clashes with other statements and principles God lays out for us throughout the scriptures. At the very most, establishing a human government to carry out the death penalty is an open option for humans as they obey and follow this statement from God. This would only be true of a voluntary theocracy under God. That's it. So you could argue that this is at least still an open option, but you cannot argue that God is establishing human governments. So more likely this statement has no relation to God desiring humans to set up governments to rule over and punish each other. It's just not there. It's really not. And so, 
to go back to all of these different options. Which one is it, you might ask? You might be thinking, which one of these interpretations is true? Well, uh, as usual, uh, I personally would say that, hey, they're all true in different ways. Kind of like I said about metaphor. The Bible's full of metaphors. They're all over the place. Symbolism is one of the uh, biggest overarching themes throughout the entire scriptures. However, just because there's metaphor in a story, it doesn't mean the story isn't true itself. The nation of Israel is a metaphor. You've got the life of Joseph as a metaphor. You've got all of these things as metaphors, but they are also true. They are also history. They are also real, real life, real people living their own lives and doing real things with other people. Uh, this is real stuff. And so I would say the same here, where, yes... I would agree that oh, a person who is a murderer is likely to be killed by human beings. I, I think that is a true statement. I think that, yes, it is true that God uses other human beings to carry out the death penalty against murderers. Yes, we have many examples of that, even on a nation-to-nation -nation scale, probably the most examples on a nation-to-nation -nation scale. I would also agree that... God says that the death penalty is true justice, and that that is at least an open option for human beings, he lays it out in Mosaic Law, to carry out, but that is done through the blood avenger, not to be taken out of context and put into the and under the authority of a human government. And uh, I, I would also agree that God desires mercy and love. And he gives plenty of examples of that. Yeshua teaches that. He shows that through his own actions. We are to mimic that. So I would also say that regardless of the fact that the death penalty is justice and the death penalty is carried out by human hands and that is at times directed by God, it, it's also true that at times he shows mercy and he has asked us to do the same. So you've got all those things. And it's, again, not a matter of which one of these is true. They're all true. They, they, they are. They're, they're not contradicting each other. The only thing that's a contradiction to this, at least in my opinion, as far as what I can tell, would be to say that God is establishing a human government in order to carry out a death penalty to kill other human beings. That, that would contradict much of this. It, it, it's, yeah. So, that wraps up Noahide Law. There is more to be said about Noahide Law as a whole, but as far as the whole idea of the theology of obedience, that's where we can stop for now. And then we'll bring in some other interesting aspects in the next episode. So the next episode, we're going to be looking at Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. And this will be uh, from a few different sources which are fairly interesting here. We've got the Genesis account, which is fairly short. You also have Josephus, who gives some commentary. You also have, I guess I need to look up who these folks are, Kiel and Delitz, maybe, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's from a book from 1975. I've got that in my notes, but I need to look up specifically what that is. But it's more commentary on Nimrod. So I'm going to look at all those. I'm going to look at another section of Genesis. We'll go from Genesis 10, and then we'll also look at some from Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel story and uh, go over uh, these different aspects of potentially the first human king 
and the first example of man setting up a human government and how that goes, which I'm sure you know roughly how that goes. So that's what story we'll be covering next time. And I guess that's it for today. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for being a supporter of the show, because just by listening, you are supporting the show. But if you also want to be a further supporter, you can leave a rating and a review. Those are very helpful. You could also support monetarily if you so choose. That's how I pay for the hosting fees and these kinds of things for this show is through supporters. And I can say thank you very much to the patrons that are mostly on Patreon, but we also have Subscribestar. And I do release some extra perks and stuff on there uh, occasionally. There aren't very many, but uh, depending on what tier you sign up as, you might get a free mug or t-shirt or something like that as well. So please feel free to check that out. In addition to that, if you have any questions or comments or anything else, please always feel free to reach out. Email is the best way, ourfoundations at protonmail.com. And I am also on Twitter at foundationspc. I think those are all the ways. Uh, There's also the website, and that would be ourfoundations.podbean.com. So again, thank you very much. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.